0: with that. Again, if you're new or visiting, we're about to start a new series, so I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, We are in the book of Nehemiah, so if you have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn to Nehemiah. We're going to look at chapters one and two. I've got a lot of things to say and a window to get it in, okay? So here's my encouragement to you. If I say something so fast that you're like, did I hear that right or or whatever, you can go back to our website. You can you can re-listen to this or re-watch that a, a thousand times if you want to, Uh, just to get all the tidbits out of this. But before we jump into the actual text in Nehemiah, that's where we're going to be, I'm going to give you some historical background because we just got done with Lamentations, right? And so here's some hericity. Hopefully you can read this. I know some of it's going to be a little small, but here's the timeline up for where we're at. So you see the first Nebuchadnezzar comes in uh, here. uh, He takes Daniel and the rest of some of those folks. um, And then this is actually a fulfillment of what happened all the way back in Deuteronomy. So if you're a note taker and you want to write in there Deuteronomy 28 through 30, God gives these curses to Israel. He says, hey, if you follow after these false gods, if you do these things that you should not be doing, this is what's going to befall you. You're going to be taken into captivity. So we are seeing God's faithfulness both in his, his warnings as well as his promises in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Daniel and Lamentations. And so that is a beautiful and wonderful thing to see God as faithful no matter what. Uh, but you see Daniel, and then the book of Lamentations, that's the fall of Jerusalem, so we just got done with Lamentations, right, and so the kings that are happening in these other, this is uh, the, the king, so you have Cyrus and Darius, so if you've read through the book of Daniel, you'll, those names will make sense to you, then you have uh, Esther, who marries Xerxes, and then Nehemiah, who is released under Artaxerxes, the, the son, right, and you're all going to be quizzed on this later, so I know you're taking copious copious notes here. And, and then, so this is the new timeline that we have here. And so while they're in captivity, you have the, the Babylonians who took them. They were conquered by the Persians. You remember the, the many, many tekel or whatever it is, the handwriting on the wall. And that was the fall of the Babylonian empire. And then you have the Persians who are rising up. That's uh, Cyrus and, and, and Darius there. And so then in that section, you have the books of Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah that were written during this time. As you can see, maybe, hopefully you can read the Cyrus decrees that they can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. It was ceased during this time. And so here's what I want you to see. Esther becomes queen in 478, right? Marries uh, Xerxes. The temple or the, the rebuilding of Jerusalem as a whole stopped during Artaxerxes for some reason. Now, whether that had anything to do with um, you know, the gallows and Esther and the Jews and all that different stuff, I, I don't know, but it, it was ceased, which then brings us to today, our text for today. And it's always weird for us. You've got to remember old history, we're counting, we're counting down to the birth of Jesus, and then from Jesus, we're counting up. And so if that threw you off, you know, we're, counting, we're counting down to zero, basically. So 444, Xerxes sends Nehemiah to Jerusalem which begins us in our text today, okay? So hopefully that gives you some kind of a a general overview of the history of where we're at. After Lamentations, they've been in captivity, and so this is why this is cool. Sorry to Bible nerd out on you for a minute, but so they're, they've been decimated. We just read this in Lamentations, this terrible section of scripture. And it ends with kind of like, unless you've utterly forgotten us, right? If, if you remember ch- uh, chapter five, verse 22, kind of ends with this, like, maybe we're going to be restored. Maybe we're not. Welcome to Nehemiah. So it's only taken about over a hundred years. Okay. But God is faithful, even though we are in Patient. And so we see this restoration through the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah is called to lead broken and defeated people to restoration. Nehemiah is going to face intense opposition from people both internally and externally. So other nations as well as infighting amongst the Jews. Nehemiah overcomes these threats with wise and defensive maneuvers, and and also his own personal example, and his encouragement and call to courage for the people around him. Nehemiah wants to do what God has put into his heart, and he wants to do that almost at any cost. And so the questions I have before we even jump in is, so where do we find strength during times like this? When it looks like the kingdom of the world is going to overcome come, the kingdom of Christ, uh, when it looks like the call that we're calling others to is, is almost doomed and desperate, what do we do? Well, we may not be called to build and restore physical walls like Nehemiah, but we are called to build and restore. Do you believe that? We are called to build and restore. We are called to build a strong church and strong churches. We are called to build godly families. We are called to restore the wandering, restore the broken, restore the neglected, restore the ashamed through the gospel. We are called to restore sound biblical teaching and build up fellow believers so in today's text, Nehemiah is going to teach us five principles. So again, if you're a note taker, he's going to teach us five principles that we must have to protect God's people, to advance the gospel, and also to summon others to do the same alongside of us. So are you ready for those five steps? I hope that you are. Let's, let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that you are a God of restoration. We thank you that you are a God that doesn't just sit on your laurels, but you are a God who rises and builds, and you will build your church, and you will raise the dead, because Jesus lives, and all his people said, amen. So the first uh, point that I think Nehemiah teaches us is we must have a loving inquiry. So all these are going to start with I, so you can write the I in front if that'll give you a little head start. Uh, we must have loving inquiry. So if you read with me, Nick's going to click through. I'm just going to read. In the words of Nehemiah, the son of Halakia. Now, it happened in the month of uh, Chislev. Now, for us, that's mid-November, December, okay? Um, so mid-November, December in the 20th year. As I was in Susa, the citadel, this is the uh, the winter palace of the kings of Persia. So that's where he's at. This is also the same spot where uh, Esther was when she held her feasts and so like that. So if, if the citadel of Susa sounds familiar to you, that's, that's where that's from. Uh, then uh, Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped and who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. So do you see his heart? His heart is for the people of God. His heart is for the place of God. His heart is for the worship of God. Are you noticing a theme about God? And so, so he asks them about this, where, where they are, how they're doing, and they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame, the wall of Jerusalem is broke down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now for us, having just finished Lamentations, you're probably thinking, oh, they, he must be talking about Lamentations. Well, this is a hundred years before. How often do we cry about things that happened a hundred years ago? Not very often, right? So what he's really talking about is when they went back under Cyrus and they were supposed to rebuild and then the rebuilding stopped. And now he's hearing about this. He says, oh, the, the temple is still there, but the people, my people are still ravaged. The city that's supposed to be the stronghold and the foundation of God is still not that. And so how do we deal with that? So he's asking these things of Ezra, 1 John four twenty through 21. If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or Romans 12, 9. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast what is good. And Romans 12 expands on this. Rejoice with those who rejoice. So how do we love our brother or sister in Christ? How do we let our love be genuine? We rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. So that's what Nehemiah is doing here. He has a loving love inquiry of the people of God so do we care for the people of the church of Christ abroad as much as we do in our own congregation how about this do we care about the people of our own congregation as much as we care about the people of our own family and if that's not good enough do we care for the people of this congregation as much as we care for ourselves love your neighbor as yourself well who is my neighbor they asked Jesus Do we care about their security and their safety? Do we know what's going on? What is their needs? What is happening? What are the loving inquiries that we must be asking this morning? Of not only the people in this room, but of people around the globe, people in our city, people in our family, people who share the name of Christian. Second thing he teaches us is we don't just stop with a loving inquiry because that's good. Ask somebody how they're doing and they tell you how they're doing and then you're like, well, thank you for the information and you move on, right? No, we have to have a hearty invocation. And I want you to see as we look at this, remember we just got done with lamentations. You're going to see the outline of a good lamentation practiced in Nehemiah. We're going to see that. And so Look for that as we read his prayer. You ready? Here we go. Uh, Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. This is this idea of being literally weak in the knees, right? You hear something so terrible that it just brings you down and you're crying out to the Lord. And as I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, also notice who he refers to God as. He immediately turns to prayer. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Jesus said this. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. He is familiar with the Bible and he quotes it back to God. Remember these things, saying, if you are unfaithful, that's what I said, it goes back to Deuteronomy. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. What I'm about to say is not the main point of the text that I have for us this morning, but it cannot go without said. Friend, if you're here this morning, it does not matter how deep or dark the shame and the guilt and the regret that you have. You are not beyond the saving power of Christ Jesus. Yeah. And if that's you this morning, and you heard all those amens around, you know you're not alone in bearing the burden of guilt and shame, and you don't have to. Because those amens you just heard understand the truth that is the gospel of Christ Jesus. Verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them... No matter where you are, I'll bring you back, is what he says in essence. Verse 10, uh, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. God is the Redeemer. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to my prayer of your servants and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, who's that man? We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but the next... Section gives it away, now I was a cupbearer to the king. So I want you to see in this text the immediacy of his prayer. He hears this news and he immediately turns to God in prayer. Does that not teach us a thing just there? And so we see the outline of his prayer. Hopefully you were able to see that, but he has this address to God. He brings a grief-stricken complaint to God. He then has a God-centered request and then he ends with an expression of trust. Is that not what we saw during Lament? as we're studying Lamentations. And he has this desired outcome. And he tells us about his position. Here's some things you need to know about a cupbearer back then. Uh, He would have been well-trained in court etiquette. If you remember Esther, I'm going to talk about that court etiquette in just a minute here. He was probably a handsome individual. Why? Because he got spoiled, right? Um, Because he was living by the king. Uh, Kings probably don't want any uggos hanging out with them when they're having their, their parties, right? And so... So anyway, uh, uh, the, the, the third thing we can maybe assume by him is he would have known how to select good wine. This would have been part of his process and his procedure. He also would have had to taste the wine before in case anyone was trying any nefarious things, which is extremely important because a lot of people died back then, uh, even through family. And so you had to kind of have a canary in the coal mine, so to speak. And that was Nehemiah. Now here's the other thing we need to understand about why he is saying this. Nehemiah is praying that God would allow him the opportunity to speak to this king. This is a hearty invocation on the part of the people. And it's going to bring us to our next point here, which is a a resolute intention. Because like I talked about, we need to remember Esther, if you weren't asked to approach the throne and you came on your own accord, death you don't just get to approach the king. You don't just get to come and ask the king questions. Emperor Cusco, Emperor's New Groove, right? Like he will throw you off the bridge. So for Nehemiah, what we need to also understand here is worldly success did not spell spiritual failure for him, okay? Even though he was a member of this royal court, it was still his appetite to have fellowship with the one true living God, even at the behest Best. I don't know if I'm using that word right. Even at the potential problem that he was going to face in his own demise, and so we also not only to remember Esther, but Mordecai, who says perhaps it was a time like this that Nehemiah is even there as a cupbearer. So he then has a hearty invocation to then practice a resolute intention because he says, "I am now the cupbearer. I have a, a good spot to bring this up." So. Chapter two now, verses one through eight, in the month of Nisan, so this is four months later, okay? Because we don't have the same kind of calendar. So about four months later is how long it took for him to either pray and fast to the point where he was ready or for this interaction to happen. We don't know, but the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Here's a key, now I had not been sad in his presence. Why? Because you don't get to be sad in the king's presence. You have to pretend like it's the best day every day. Every day is the king's birthday, and we're singing and we're clapping and we're happy, right? That's because they're the king. And the king said to me, and this is why you're gonna understand what he's gonna say at the end of this. The king said to me, why is your face sad seeing you are not sick? Because again, if you were sick, you wouldn't be here. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then he says, I was very much afraid. Why? Because the king was on to him. So what's your deal, man? Basically, the king is saying. I, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Good start, Nehemiah. <laughs> Keep that up, right? Why should not my face be sad? When Now also, there's political move here. He doesn't mention Jerusalem by name because he knows that the building has already stopped, remember? So we got to know our history too. So he doesn't mention Jerusalem specifically so that he can not have any hangups. This is the wisdom of God that has been put on him. It says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city and the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and the gates have been des- destroyed by fire? And again, the king knows what this is about because just like any people who are in power, usually when people come to him, there's some kind of, a, so what's your agenda? Nehemiah is what he's asking here. What are you requesting? Verse four, I, I need you to see this, whether it's in your copy of God's word or on the screen, I need you to see this. What are you requesting? And this is what it said. So I asked the king exactly what I wanted. He said, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Before he says anything to this king of men, he goes to the king of kings. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it and the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, again, it is so interesting that God continues to use these things, right? It was Vashti of the same kingdom, it was Vashti that was disobedient during this drunken revelry. By the way, the Persians had a lot of drunken revelry as you look historically, right? That's when the hand was written on the wall. That's when Vashti screwed up. That's when, you know, they were having this thing with uh, Haman when he got put on the gallows. There's a lot of drunken revelry in the Persian, which, you know, pagans, what can we expect, right? Um, So, but anyway, and so this is during this time here and the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? He likes Nehemiah. He wants Nehemiah as a faithful cupbearer because Nehemiah has been a faithful, good man of God in the position that he has put him in, in the world, but not of the world. Nehemiah, this king wants him back. So it pleased the king to send him uh, when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, and he doesn't just ask to go back. So listen, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me and governors of the providence beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And that A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for. Why? Because Nehemiah was such a good speaker? Because Nehemiah had real good, you know, had had it in with the king? No. Because the good hand of God was upon me. And so Nehemiah is practicing what the New Testament tells us we ought to practice too in Romans 8.15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So why do we bother wasting our time asking earthly kings for things when we have a heavenly Father who knows our hearts, knows our desires, knows what is good and perfect will is? 2 Timothy 1.7, for God did not give you a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control, or Luke 12 11 through 12 which basically states this when they bring you before these people when you have to make an utterance the holy spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say this popcorn prayer is one of the most striking knee-jerk prayers that we see in all of scripture The other thing he does here is he, he plans ahead. He knew exactly what he was going to ask for before he asked it. Do you see that? He didn't stumble. He didn't fumble. He said, if it pleases you, king, this is what I want to do. Also, by the way, if it pleases you, king, this is how I want to do it. And so you've heard this statement before. Probably those who fail to plan plan to fail. Well, I would add to that, and I think Nehemiah would too, that those who fail to pray have failed already. And so Nehemiah practices good leadership. He asks questions, and he seeks the Lord. And so I want to ask you, what's your resolute intention? Do you even know? Do you even have a plan? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, pastor, that's all well and good, but we're actually told not to plan, and I would say, touche, brother or sister in Christ. James 4.13 says, you're right, we shouldn't just say we're going to go and do this or that, but what we should say is, as the Lord wills. And so I return to my question, do you even have a plan? Are you asking the Lord? Because we ought to have a loving inquiry, a hearty invocation, and then resolute intention to carry out that which God has put on our hearts. Which brings us to the fourth, is this meticulous inspection. Because remember, Nehemiah has only heard what is happening in Jerusalem. He has not seen what is happening in Jerusalem. He has to go and make meticulous inspection if he's going to really know what to do. And so in verses nine, picking up there, uh, this is where he begins this. He says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. He was coming in, Authority and power now. And that's very important as we read the rest of Nehemiah why this matters. Verse 10 will give you a preview. But when Sanibel, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Amorite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Never think that the world is going to be for you when you are of the things of God. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose at night. I and a few men with me and I I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode and I I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire and then I, I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool but there was no room for the animal that I was under to pass. They were so busted and broken and Disheveled, that he couldn't even get through there. Then I went up to the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. Nehemiah is practicing wisdom here, Proverbs sixteen twenty-five, as well as Proverbs fourteen twelve says, "There is a way that seems right to a man, but in its end, that way is death." Or Proverbs eighteen thirteen, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame. Proverbs eighteen twenty-four. A man with many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. In Proverbs 16.3, commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Matthew Henry, one of the best commentators, I think, of all time, this is what he says about this section. He says, good work is, is likely to be done well when it is first well considered. He also says, those that would build up the church's walls must first take notice of the ruin of those walls. Those that would know how to amend must inquire what is amiss, what needs reformation, and what may still serve as it is. Here's what we need to understand. These walls of Jerusalem represent the spiritual boundary for God's people. They keep those who belong to God secure and safe within, and they protect and keep out those who do not belong to God. What good work of the church are we leaving undone because we've neglected to really look at ourselves? What I'm asking is, where in our lives do we need to be about the business of meticulous inspection? This goes back to what Jesus said, "Remove from your own eye before you can see clearly to remove from your brother or sister," correct? And so I want to ask you, are we actually doing any meticulous inspection? Or instead, are we doing a bunch of navel gazing? Because what Nehemiah tells us here is that if there's work to be done, where is it? Where have we grown accustomed to this? You know, the people who were in Jerusalem were so used to the walls be broken down that they didn't notice it anymore. It took somebody from outside to come in to say, guys, what are we doing here? And it took somebody who had A loving inquiry, a hearty invocation, and a resolute intention to actually make this meticulous inspection. So where are the walls of doctrine beginning to decay? See, today's God name is no longer at stake in city walls and gates. It's just not. This building can burn down tomorrow, and that would be just fine. I know you think, no, it wouldn't. But no, it it would. But instead... God's name is not in the stake of those things. His name is at stake in our lives, the lives of his people. We are the new temple. And so what walls and gates do do you need to restore? Your marriage? Your children? That eye gate that we had talked about, maybe Maybe the eye gate is too broken down or the ear gate and we need to pay attention and rebuild that which we let in by what we view or what we hear. Maybe we need to recognize that just as Jerusalem lay in ruins, our life can be that way as well. But take heart. I'm going to stumble over this word. Because of all these things, Nehemiah has what I think you and I want, which is supernatural intrepidity. I did it. (laughs) Perhaps you don't know what that word is. I didn't either. I used a thesaurus and a dictionary to find it because I wanted all my eyes to match, right? Old preacher trick to get them all in a line there. Supernatural intrepidity means fearlessness. The ability to carry on even in the face of opposition. And so Nehemiah needed, we need a supernatural intrepidity as, as we look at verses 16 and following to end our message for today. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not told the Jews and the priests, the nobles, the officials and the rest of who were there to do the work. Verse 17 and 18. I love these verses here. And I also, I really like verse 20, but we'll get there in a minute. So 17 and 18. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But here's the opposition again, right? This world is not for us. But when Sandoval, the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it they jeered at us and despised us and said what is this thing that you are doing are are you rebuilding or I'm sorry are you rebelling against the king verse 20 then I replied to them the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem he said mind your business okay that's what he said And that's exactly what we need to be able to say to a world who is opposed to us. Do not let them say, hey, you have no right to do this because here's the deal. A human king gave Nehemiah the right, but we have a king of kings and a Lord of lords that has told us to go and to make and to teach and to baptize and to build and that not even... The gates of hell are going to stop the church. And so we have a supernatural intrepidity, at least I hope you do, or you will when you make loving inquiry, hearty invocation, resolute intention, meticulous inspection, because that is the gift of God. And so he gives them a call to action in 17 and 18. He has a perceptible action. The walls are broken, we need to fix them, look at them. He gives a practical action of how they're going to do this, and he gives personal action. Beloved, we have all those things in Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount, the fruit of the Spirit, is the lens by which we can do meticulous Inspection of our own lives, and we can have perceptible action, practical action, personal action by our Lord and Savior Christ in our lives. So, if you're a Christian, let me invite you to consider the derision that God's enemy heaps upon a church with broken down walls. And let us rise and let us build. Let's pray. God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of Nehemiah's charge to a God-fearing, God-honoring people. God, we ask that as this church, as churches of Allegan, as churches who claim the name of Christ, who teach Scripture, who seek to fear and honor your name, who seek to build your kingdom, help us to stand in the face of worldly opposition. Help us to have confidence in you. Let us not speak on our own authority, but rather of the God of heaven. Let us advise people, not in ignorance, but rather through supernatural intrepidity as we have loving inquiry and the rest. Help us, Lord. We know that Nehemiah is called to lead this broken people, and so are we. We know that Nehemiah is going to face intense opposition, and so are we. the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants will arise and build. It's in your name. We pray that that would be so. And all God's people said, amen.